Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, God and the Problem of Evil, with a message entitled, The Fall of Evil, Part 1. So turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk, Chapter 2, Verses 5 and 8, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Evil often appears menacing and overwhelming. Well, I do know that we live in an optimistic age where we're frequently told to, to believe in ourselves, and we're taught that through the process of evolution, both we and our culture and our technology is getting better. But there remains in our social conscience this seed of doubt. The hype over global warming and the concern over weapons of mass destruction and the constantly increasing number of nations that now belong to the nuclear club, well, all that makes us wonder whether we really should be optimistic after all. You know, we have books in our culture like George Orwell's 1984, in which in the end, evil actually conquers. You know, even though we have many books in which good prevails and evil is conquered, you know, I suspect as a culture, we're actually not that sure about it. I mean, consider the evidence. You know, for one, death wins every battle. You can eat bran and jog and always get your physicals at the doctor, but you're going to lose. You know, also, as we've noted in this series, the world has just passed through the bloodiest century in human history. Maybe we're not getting better after all. Some of us wonder about the final outcome of radical Islam or of terrorism. Whatever we make of evil, it is sheer madness to deny it or to ignore its awesome powers. Does evil win in the end? We've been studying the book of Habakkuk, and we've noted that the book of Habakkuk began with a complaint. Habakkuk wanted to know how a good God would allow so much evil to exist in the city of Jerusalem. He was speaking about the rich oppressing the poor and, and the fact that the legal system had become subverted. And with that came his question, God, why don't you do something about that? And the answer came back. God was doing something. He was raising up the Babylonian Empire to destroy Judah and also the other evil nations surrounding. And Habakkuk shocked, and yet he accepts the answer. Judah did deserve to be punished, yet he has a second question. Since Babylon was a shade of evil more wicked than the evil in Jerusalem, how could God use a more wicked nation to punish a less wicked nation? And the answer came back that God allows great wickedness to have its day. And he has a reason for that. God allows evil to have a day when it seems unstoppable so that when he defeats it, his victory will seem all the more sweet and all the more beautiful and all the more glorious. And we learn that this is to highlight God's greater glory. The deeper the evil, the more glorious God will appear to redeem humanity, and the greater and more lasting and more profound will be our joy. Now, in the meantime, we've learned four valuable lessons. First, that God permits evil for a time to serve his own good purposes. Second, we learned that God uses evil to punish evil. Third, we learned that God brings good out of evil. We learned that Satan and evil men intend evil for the sake of evil, but God intends or allows evil to have a season so that a far greater good is brought out of those circumstances. Finally, we learned that God's people need to rejoice, for God uses evil in our lives to shape us and to chasten us and correct us and bring us into an attitude of loving submission to him. But the book of Habakkuk, although answering many of our questions about evil, is still not done. 
For even though God is sovereign over evil, that is, even though he rules evil and uses it for his good purposes, evil is still evil. It's still a thing hated by God. And so today we learn what we already know. When evil has unwillingly served the purposes of God, God will utterly destroy it. We will see this pictured in God's plan for the destruction of Babylon. Now for today, we're going to discover the first of three lessons regarding the fall of evil. So I'm going to read Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as white as Sheol, like death he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long? and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those who awake, who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you, for the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Now, those of you who know your Bible well might find that there are similarities between Habakkuk 2 and Revelation 18. Here's a portion of Revelation 18 in verses 2 and 8. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. You know, the history of Babylon begins in Genesis 10, which records the beginnings of human civilization. There we meet a man named Nimrod, and he's a man of violence. He's called a mighty hunter before the Lord, which means he's one who opposes God with violence. Through his exploits of evil, he's able to build a city based on the hatred of the God of creation and gives it the name Babel. Their human ingenuity and the progress of human technology allows the city to build a tower or a ziggurat, which is a monumental temple in which the citizens could make a name for themselves and offer its civilization as an alternative to the worship of the one true God. Babel would become the power of the earth. It would be the reign of Antichrist, where Satan and his followers would gain governance of God's creation. Well, the Bible says God came down and saw the tower, and and God confused their language and scattered them, but Babel, or Babylon, was never totally abandoned. In time, it would be rebuilt. In 2350 BC, that is, before the time of Abraham, a man named Sargon I would restore and rebuild the temple tower. But in 1595 BC, while Israel was in slavery in Egypt, the Hittites overthrew it again. And so has been the struggle for Babylon. In time, according to Revelation, at least this is how I read Revelation, the Roman Empire would internalize the spirit of Babylon, and the spirit of Babylon would not only live and thrive in that empire, but it would become a savage prostitute drinking the blood of the saints. And in the end times, the spirit of Babylon will again form an empire more evil and more vicious than any of its former incarnations. Babylon will give birth to the Antichrist, which is the ultimate incarnation of evil. Babylon, since its beginning, has been the symbol of world evil and domination. So to speak about the destruction of Babylon is to speak about the destruction of the city of man as as opposed to the city of God. It's to speak about the destruction of Satan's empire. It's it's to speak about the destruction of the sum total of all that's evil. What we find in Habakkuk is that Babylon is destined to fall. This passage from Habakkuk tells us why. 
See, from Habakkuk 2, verse 5, we learn that evil has an inbuilt weakness. I'm reading Habakkuk 2, verse 5. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. I want you to notice the word wine, and, and you'll notice in many Bibles that there's a footnote here. If you change one letter in the Hebrew, this word becomes the word wealth. You know, in the 1940s, a complete copy of Habakkuk was found in the caves at Qumran in Israel, a part of what we now know as the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, these scrolls contain the oldest version of Habakkuk that we now possess. Well, in those scrolls, the word that we have as wine is not wine, but has that one letter difference. And so the word is the word wealth. You know, if those ancient scrolls are correct, that it is wealth that Habakkuk wrote about rather than wine, then he truly describes the Babylonian spirit, a city and nation who conquered one kingdom after another and stole all their wealth. But, says Habakkuk, what Babylon doesn't know is that wealth is a traitor. You know, a traitor is someone who switches alliances, someone who thought was on your side, but who turns against you and does you great harm. And that, says Habakkuk, is what Babylon doesn't know about the wealth that they've amassed. The idea presented to us in verse 5 is that at the heart of Babylon is an insatiable greed. That's why they continue to conquer nations and why they keep amassing their wealth. Their greed, says our text, is as wide as Sheol or as the place of the dead. You know, in the Bible, Sheol is often presented as a place where the dead are constantly going, but Sheol is never filled up. That's how the Babylonian greed is presented. Babylon is robbing the wealth of all the nations, but as she does so, it only enlarges her appetite and it doesn't sate it. And because of that, instead of consolidating her power, Babylon keeps swallowing up more nations and the more she does that, the more vulnerable she becomes. And eventually, her greed is going to betray her and she will no longer be able to control the nations that she has once defeated. Her greed is going to become her vulnerability and become her traitor, and by her greed, she will be destroyed. Hi, this is Dr. John Newfeld from Back to the Bible Canada. Let me start by saying how grateful I am for all you've done to make the fiscal year-end campaign at Back to the Bible a success. Every time a gift is received, I am overwhelmed by your trust and support. The willingness and generosity of friends like you ensures that the mission of Bible teaching here at Back to the Bible Canada continues across this nation. It really is a coast-to-coast -coast effort. Listeners from every province and territory, in small towns and in big cities. I'm so grateful for those who share a heart for God's Word and a desire to see lives impacted by Jesus. So I offer a sincere and heartfelt thank you. Your kindness makes every one of the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada possible. May the Lord bless you. How many of you know how greed betrays? Well, here's how. Greed, at least at the beginning, seems like a vehicle to get ahead. You know, a man or woman wants a better house or a car or luxuries that were once beyond his or her reach. But soon greed 
which seemed like a tool to get ahead, turns around and consumes the one who has it. Finally, the desire to have more goes beyond all bounds and gains the power to compel our behavior to our own destruction. Of course, all greed is like that. Talk to the man who earns his first million and what does he want? (laughs) He wants another million. Talk to the man who finally gets the house or car or cottage of his dreams and as soon as he has it, he's dissatisfied because he notices a better house or a better car than he now has. You know, whole nations can become like that when materialism is more highly valued than righteousness and justice and the well-being of people. But as Habakkuk states, the desire to constantly have more will betray Babylon. Now, let's move to the first part of verse 6. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? Now, so you see here that at some time that those who have been ravaged by Babylon are called upon to take up a taunt. Do you remember when you were a child in grade school? Kids taunt one another. Freddy is a scaredy cat. That's what we said. We said it over and over and over again. And then Freddy would get angry, and, and the angrier he would become, the more we would taunt. See, that's what taunts do. They're meant to get under someone's skin. They're meant to show the one being taunted, we don't respect them. And that's what Habakkuk recommends regarding Babylon, the symbol of evil. Begin to taunt her. Now, as we look at the rest of chapter 2, you're going to notice that the word woe comes up five times. You're going to see that in verse 6, then in verse 9, then verse 12, then 15, and then 19. Now, each woe represents a taunt. Well, how? Well, first of all, each woe describes evil of Babylon, and then it describes how this evil comes with a built-in weakness that the very thing that was evil ended up being a traitor. Babylon's going to crumble. Babylon doesn't know it, but the very evil that it is doing is turning against it. It has become a traitor. And so defeated nations are called upon to taunt Babylon. Now, several things are imperative here. We are asking the question of why God allows evil to go on for so long. And here in this passage, we're beginning to gain an insight that might have escaped us until now. Let me give an illustration to make this plain. We've all heard the sad story of people who have made it. Perhaps they become famous or powerful or wealthy, and then they fall in the midst of disgrace. As an example, consider the pastor of a megachurch who has a large television ministry. And suddenly a sexual scandal is unearthed, and that same man who once seemed an envy to many is now viewed as an object of contempt and scorn. Now, don't you think that it would have been better for that man to never have reached that kind of prominence. What if he'd only been the pastor of a church of 75 people? Then, when he fell, his name would not have become a byword. Indeed, the higher a person rises, the greater is their pain when they fall. And that's what God plans for evil. His plan is so to humiliate evil that when it falls, evil will for all eternal ages seem so overwhelmingly dishonored, so debased and held up to eternal contempt. How evil will be mocked for its utter ruin. Now, let me put this in a matter that's easy to grasp. Think of the current raw, unstoppable power of death. Now, those of you listening to my voice that have witnessed the unexpected death of a loved one, Does not death seem like a monster to you? Now think of the day when death is ultimately defeated. Will you not rise up and mock death? Will it not be the delight of the redeemed to rise up in a cry of utter triumph and contempt over death? 
See, don't you see, God has chosen to defeat evil. He has chosen to defeat it with such finality that what happens to evil is an eternal byword. Hence, since Jesus has already risen from the dead, does it not seem fitting that we should already take up a taunt against Babylon? For already Babylon is hearing the footsteps of her utter humiliation. So taunt people of God and call out your woes against evil. So might I personalize this? If you're a child of God and you know that God is sovereign over evil and and uses it for his purposes and for your long-term good, then rejoice. Of course you know that evil is still evil, but you should already be rejoicing in anticipation that in God's perfect timing, evil will fall. So taunt it. Martin Luther once recommended that when the devil comes to assail you, you should quote scripture at him. And and if he still doesn't leave, you should mock him. And if it still doesn't leave, you should break wind in his direction. You know, as, as crass as Luther sometimes was, what he was saying was profoundly biblical. He is calling for God's people to utterly despise Satan, despise evil. You know, you can because it will end, for it has built-in weaknesses. Its greed is already exposed. Its greed has betrayed it. So let's look at the first woe, saving the others for later. I'm reading Habakkuk 2, 6b to 8. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples will plunder you for the blood of man and the violence of the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. You know, in each one of the woes or the taunts, we should notice three distinct elements. The first is the word woe. It's a word that's used in funeral laments. It's like saying, we're making all the funeral arrangements already for Babylon. We've picked out the appropriate casket. The grave plot has been purchased and a hole has been dug. We've printed out a bulletin and the eulogy has already been written. We're ready for the body. Woe to Babylon. A second element of the taunt is the reason for the woe. The sins of Babylon are recounted. She will be utterly destroyed because an official trial has found her guilty. And then finally, the third is the announcement of utter doom. So let's follow the formula. First, woe. Second, the reason for the woe or the sins are here. Turns out that Babylon has misunderstood her actions. She saw the nations she destroyed as her victims. But she was wrong. The nations were actually her creditors. Imagine it this way. Imagine a man going to a furniture store and on an impulse, he buys $100,000 in furniture, couches, tables, chairs, I mean, you name it. And as he goes to the cash register to pay, he pulls out his visa card and either taps it against the receptor or inserts it into a slot, punches in his pin number, and then he goes home smiling and he says to himself, I've plundered the furniture store and the visa company. I mean, what a coup. But of course, he hasn't plundered anything. He's simply racking up a debt, and the debt will surely come due when the visa company will demand a reckoning. And that, says Habakkuk, is what the wicked city of Babylon has done as she has plundered nations. With each plunder, the debt load went higher, and she didn't know it. Each act of evil was increasing her indebtedness, and the greed with which she plundered really was a traitor. Babylon would never for one moment get away with anything, and accounting was coming due. Woe to Babylon. And then, of course, comes the announcement of doom. The nations that have been wronged will line up and they will plunder her. All the nations will turn upon Babylon. Woe to Babylon. And what, dear child of God, has all that to do with us? 
You know, one of the reasons we become angry over evil is that some of us are thinking that evil people are getting away with evil. Indeed, they are not. They are either being extended time and mercy to truly and humbly repent, or they're being allowed to increase their debt load to rise higher and higher so that their fall will be so much greater, so that their punishment is frightful beyond imagining. And that your child of God is your comfort in the day of evil. He who is altogether wise and sovereign and powerful and loving is so arranging matters so that evil's destruction is utter and complete, so that God's righteous elect are vindicated and God's glory is seen to be as as glorious as possible. And so do not fall into despair. All children of God should be the most hopeful people on earth. Our courage and undiminished spirit should be visible to all. This hope of ours is what the world needs, and it is the reason for our confidence. Now, does that answer all of our questions about evil? I suspect not, but it surely answers the question in the broadest of all terms. And so live like a child of hope. If you've suffered loss or have been grieved, comfort yourself in the confidence that God gives you. And above all, begin to taunt and to mock Babylon. Woe to Babylon! Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us what you're up to, because as you reveal your will to us, you increase our faith and you increase our anticipation of that which lies ahead. To God be the glory. Amen. John, this whole idea of taunting evil, do you think that's something we ought to be doing as Christians today? Should we be taunting evil? Yeah, and and, uh, I think we need to make a distinction between taunting people and uh, taunting evil. Uh, You know, the scripture says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And so we need to recognize that individuals are uh, sometimes being manipulated by the evil one. They're also being manipulated by their own sin nature and by the culture around us. So the world of flesh and the devil. But I think what we can do in some kind of a taunt to say to the world of flesh and the devil, you're not going to last, but the kingdom of God will. I mean, yours is the the temporal kingdom, which will soon pass away. And uh, maybe we just rehearse to our own minds uh, what will happen to this own evil age. And as we're doing that, it does form a kind of a taunt. I mean, the taunting is, woe to you, Babylon. And so maybe woe to this evil world in which we live in, for its day will soon come. I think it's okay for Christians to talk that way. I really do. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. It doesn't matter where you live. The secular culture around the globe has taken its hold in our communities. It's clear that as Christians, we can't isolate ourselves from the culture around us. We need to be set apart, but how can we do that? If Christians are called to do more than just condemn what is wrong, how do we do it? There's a culture that exists today that is destructive and harmful. So how can we live as an alternative to it? How can we truly live out the alternative lifestyle that God has called us to live? Well, the first step is to open the Bible and see what God's Word has to say. In Dr. Neufeld's series, An Alternative Lifestyle, Dr. John does just that by diving into the book of Philemon. And we're excited to offer the series to you on CD as our gift. 
To get your copy of An Alternative Lifestyle, all you need to do is visit us at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.